you take a copy of God's Word this morning and turn open to 1 Timothy as we continue our way through that book, 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible, please grab a pew Bible if you didn't bring a Bible. There's a pew Bible in front of you. You can turn to page 992, 992 there in the pew Bible. This morning, 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 14 through 16 this morning. We always want God's blessing upon both the reading and preaching of the Word. It's He who must work. So let's pray this morning for His blessing. Father, we are thankful this morning as we sit in this place, that you have not left us to our own devices, but that you have spoken to us through your word. We're thankful that you are not silent. We pray this morning that we would clearly hear your voice. Would you preach a better sermon than this preacher has? May we all find that as we are in this place this morning, that it is you and your Son that is in the forefront of our minds. The Spirit is applying the Word as we each have need. And that we know as we leave this place that we have heard from the living God. Speak to us, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, this is the holy, inerrant, sufficient Word of God. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed, among nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. It has taken Paul here about three chapters middle of this third chapter, to get to the point where he tells Timothy that he has longed to be with him, he wants to be with him there in Ephesus where he has left Timothy, and yet he tells Timothy that he knows he has some kind of harbinger that he is not going to make it, that he is going to be delayed in 
some way. And so he tells Timothy the reason he's written this whole letter to him. There is something of great importance that has come to his mind, and that's why he sent this letter. He might be delayed, so he's sending this letter, he says, for this reason, to instruct how one ought to behave in the household of God. How one ought to behave in the household of God. As we saw in previous weeks leading up to this, what Paul has been doing is he has been ordering the church. He has been giving instructions to Timothy about how the church is to be ordered as it is in this world. That is, how we are to behave in the household of God, what it's to look like. And so no doubt as he's writing this, and he's just finished this section on elders and deacons, he has upon his mind that he is instructing the church, he knows that this is going to be a circular letter, that the church is going to hear this read. And so he's instructing the church itself that it is to support their leaders, even as he is reminding the leaders that they are to care for the church, and now how the church is to look and exist in this world. And to do so, he uses two metaphors to speak about the church. He calls it the household of God, and secondly, a temple. It's a household of God, and it is a temple. First, the church is the household of God. That is, we are the family of God. God is a God of order, not a God of disorder, and that is why it is so important that the church be ordered Because it is God's household, it is His family. We Christians in the room, that day when God revealed Himself to you in the person of Christ, and He took you from darkness into the light, He gave you the gift of faith. He took that cold, hard-hearted, heart that you had, hardened heart that you had, and He made it a heart of flesh, and He put His Spirit within you, and the old you passed away, we're told, and a new you was born. You're no longer the man, or the woman, or the girl, or the boy that you were, a new you. But it's not just that you are new. You now belong to a new family. You have a new father. God. You belong to the household of God. And as a child of His, you have all the blessings that accompany that. One of my favorite hymns, I love when we sing it, is And Can It Be? Love it. Love every stanza. I especially love the fourth and the fifth stanzas in And Can It Be. That fifth stanza, the, the last stanza where we say and we will all confess boldly as we sing it. Boldly I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown of Christ my own. How can you say that and sing that with such conviction? It would be silly, if not downright hubris, 
if it wasn't revealed to us. That you have every right. Because you're a son, daughter of the Father. Son, daughter of the great King, you have access to that throne room. It's right, why? Well, for his children. I think about my own children, my son and daughter. They have a claim upon me like no one else. They have privileges. They have right expectations of me like no one else and no one else can have or should have of me. Why? Because they're my children. And I'm their father. They can approach me anytime they want. At 12.30 a.m. in the morning, I am woken up and one of them is beside my bed because they have some need. They have a right there. They are welcomed there. I'm all theirs. But if you show up in my bedroom at 12.30 a.m., you're not welcome there. I'm not yours. They always have my love. They always have my forgiveness. They know I do this every time when they have sinned and they come to me and they say, Daddy, will you forgive me for such and such? My response is always the exact same. Of course I forgive you. I will always forgive you. It's a right expectation. I'm their Christian father. He is our father we have privileges and right expectations. We claim that crown without fear of condemnation. What crown? The crown of righteousness. The crown of princes and princesses. The crown of an heir. We claim it with boldness because it's ours. It's ours. Because we're children of His members of the household of God were united to Him. It also means that as members of the household of God, it is not just that God is my Father. It is also true that as I am made a member of the household of God, I don't just get a new father, I get new siblings. I am now united with all kinds of brothers and sisters that I didn't have before. I've said to you this Many times before, I'm going to say it many times more as I pastor to you. But you're not just saved unto God, you're saved unto one another. We're saved into a family. He put us together. And He put us together in love. There are no strangers in this household of God. There are no rejects here. We are all just a bunch of misfits that He has put together and He has poured out His grace upon and He is united together for our common good and for His glory. We are the household of God. I need you. You need me. We need each other. We have responsibilities to one another, even as we have responsibilities to Him. It is an act of exceeding kindness that He gave you brothers and sisters to walk through this life with. 
act of exceeding kindness. I've often thought if we could just see each other as brothers and sisters and brothers and sisters that will exist together for all of eternity, how dramatically that would affect our relationships. And how much more graciousness and kindness and long-suffering and patience would be exhibited, how much more love. Every one of us is necessary in the household of God. I think some approach the church thinking that it's only the theologian or the person in the same stage of life as me, or the person who has something to teach me, or the person that thinks like me, that God has gifted to me in this body. No! He's gifted all of us to one another because we're all family. The simple-minded person has something to teach the deep theologian about faith. The disabled child has something to teach the strong about dependence. The widow has something to teach the stable about perseverance. If we make the church just into tribes and we stick to our own affinity groups, those who are like us, we are robbing ourselves of all the benefits of the family. And it's foolish. It's not the way to do church. It's not the way to do the Christian life. It's very unchristian. We have a Father, and He's put us together for our good and His glory. And that takes effort, it takes humility. Above all, it takes love. So the church is the household of God. It is to be marked by love. Second, the church is a temple, and He fleshes us out and two different ways in the text. The first is that it is a temple of the living God. Where does God live? He lives among and with and in His people. He's doing a contrast here. He knows what Ephesus is and He knows what these Ephesians are encountering in their culture. He knows that where they live, there are all kinds of people that are worshiping false, dead pagan gods, but he's saying this is the covenant-keeping God. This is the God who has made His covenant promise throughout Scripture that said, I am your God and you are my people and I am with you. Jesus said this when He sent the disciples out into the world, lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Christians are temples of the Holy Spirit. And what was the temple? It was the dwelling place of God with man in this world. Now you and I, we are just living, breathing, walking temples of the Holy Spirit. And when we come together like this in corporate worship, He is especially present. Especially present. Oh, how that is to shape our living and our gathering and our interactions with one another. This is one of the reasons it is so important for you to be in corporate worship. Some of you watching this morning, live stream, 
It's so important that you are in corporate worship here with the people of God united together in the same place with the household of God. Here where all of these individual living, holy, breathing, holy temples come together and are being shaped and influenced with one another to be built up into a true holy temple unto the Lord. You have to do that together. The fact that He is with us is being highlighted by Paul because the church, being the residence of a living God, is so very different from the Ephesians and what they saw in their pagan society around them. He's doing this all with the background of of Ephesus. Ephesus is a famous city in the ancient world. This is... A city that is renowned, and it's renowned. People would travel to Ephesus from all over the world, and it was renowned for one thing, and they would travel there for one thing. It was the home and the seat of one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. In the very center of Ephesus sat the temple to Artemis. It was a grand temple. Like I said, one of the seven wonders of the world. It was the largest temple in all of the Greek world. It was twice the size of the Parthenon. It was an absolutely architectural masterpiece. This place where Artemis was to be worshipped or Diana was to be worshipped. And it was an incredible architectural masterpiece but within it was dead. Because the God that was inhibited was dead. But he says, this is the temple of the living God. Church is wholly different. He lives with us. He lives among us. He lives in us and As we gather here this morning in this very room, He is here. He's here. And that means that we are to be a holy people. You live different when you're in the presence of deity. The Christian understands that they are living continually in the presence of deity. And so it's not just love that is to mark the church, because it is the household of God, but it is also holiness that is to mark the church, because we are the living temple of God. Holiness is always tied to worship. Paul's whole point here is to make clear how the Ephesians are, quote, to behave in the household of God. Love, holiness, are to mark the church. And then third, He now brings home truth. He extends the temple metaphor and He says that the church is a pillar and buttress of the truth. We are to be marked by love because we are the household of God. We are to be marked by holiness because we are the temple of God. And we are to be marked by truth because we are the temple of God. He says that we are the pillar and buttress of truth. I want to take the last verse, that we are a buttress of truth. That is, what is a buttress? It is the base. 
It's the foundation. And what does the foundation of a building do? Well, it holds the building together. It keeps it. The church holds on to the truth and supports it. It maintains it amidst all of the things that would seek to break the truth, to demolish the truth, to somehow disregard the truth. The church defends the truth. It's a buttress. The church is also a pillar of truth. What do pillars do? They hold up the roof that is above. Again, it is this temple of Artemis that is in the background. The temple of Artemis is one of the ancient wonders of the world. It had 60 columns, or 120 some columns. And each of those 120 some columns were 60 feet in height. And all of those 120 plus columns, 60 feet in height, they all existed to hold up above them this shimmering, glimmering, bright, marble roof that could be seen for miles and miles and miles around. The pillars existed to hold up the roof. And so Paul is saying that the church is a pillar to hold up the truth. Just so, John Stott said, the church holds the truth aloft so that it is seen and admired by the world. Indeed, as pillars lift a building high while remaining themselves unseen, so the church's foundation is not to advertise itself, but to advertise and display the truth. It's interesting, and I think it is significant, that Paul here doesn't use the definite article when he speaks about pillar. That the church is a pillar of the truth. That is, he doesn't use the definite article, the. And so he could be speaking of, I think again, the background of that temple of Artemis, that there are all kinds of pillars. And all of those pillars are holding up the truth. And so it is that it is all the little C churches in the world all the local churches in the world are to be, as it were, pillars that are helping display the truth of the Gospel before all the world. This is why we are a connectional church as Universal Reformed Church. We're not just concerned with ourselves. I'm not. This is why we're connected to churches in our region and we're helping Pathway in Brighton and we're helping plant Good Shepherd in Kalamazoo and looking to possibly plant up in Mount Pleasant and why we're linked together with all these churches in our presbytery and linked together with all these churches in our denomination and linked together with denominations throughout the world, but it's also why we're linked together with sister churches here in Lansing. Why we pray for them. Why we host Magnify with them. Why we host a pastor's gathering here with them. Monthly. Because we care what happens at Red Cedar. We care what happens at Covenant Life and Holt Baptist and Cedar Street 
Baptist and Holt and Graham Church and South Church because we need all of these churches holding up the truth of God's Word. It requires more than simply us. You see what Paul is getting at with this metaphor where he speaks about buttress and pillar of truth. The church has two requirements here. It is both to defend the gospel and it is to declare the gospel. It is to defend the gospel as a buttress. It is to declare the gospel as a pillar. One is not sufficient. Truth needs to be defended and it also needs to be declared. It's a popular preacher in our day right now. I won't mention him by name. I'm not going to quote him directly so you can't go look it up. But I saw the other day where he said something along these lines. I'm changing it a little bit so you can't find it, hopefully. But he said, we don't teach the Bible here. We don't teach theology We don't teach doctrine. Because all of that gets in the way of evangelism. We are about evangelism. No. You're not a church if that is true. The church is to defend the truth. We must defend the gospel. The church is a buttress. But the church is also not a holy huddle concerned with simply gazing at its own theological belly button. It cannot be content to simply grow deeper and having a defensive stance. It is also a pillar. It is lifting high the Gospel, proclaiming it to those who are outside that need to see the beauty of it. That we are salt and light in the world. That we show them that this thing is actually beautiful that we believe in. This Christ Himself is more beautiful than you can possibly imagine. Both defense and declare. I want to just briefly address the fact that Roman Catholics will turn to this text. And they will often go here to argue that church tradition is the foundation of truth. The church gets to determine truth. Paul in Ephesians 2, he will speak about the foundation of the church in a different way. He will say that the foundation is the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself being the chief cornerstone. And so he's speaking about the Word of God, the apostles and prophets, the writers of the Scriptures are the foundation of the church. The Scriptures, this truth, is the foundation of the church. And Christ Himself is the cornerstone which everything lines up to in the church. So the question is this. You have Ephesians 2, then you have 1 Timothy 3. There you have foundation. Here you have buttress and pillars. Buttress somehow speaks of a foundation. So which is it? Is the church the foundation of truth or is truth the foundation of the church? It depends what we're speaking about. The church never, ever determines the truth 
That's Paul's point in Ephesians 2. But it is called to defend and declare the truth. John Stott said it this way. He said the church depends on the truth for its existence. The truth depends on the church for its defense and proclamation. And that's right. What is the principal truth that the church is to defend and declare? Well, here's the content, Paul says, verse 16. Great indeed, he says, we confess is the mystery of godliness. And then we have this beautiful confession. This early creed in the church. Paul is making an allusion here to Acts 19. You may remember Acts 19 where Paul is in Ephesus in this city where Timothy is now pastoring. And as Paul is in Ephesus and he is preaching, there are all kinds of people that start to come to saving faith in Ephesus. No doubt it was the beginning of the church that Timothy is now pastoring. And as all of these people were coming to saving faith in Ephesus, it was disrupting commerce. The mighty dollar was suffering in Ephesus. Why? Because people traveled to Ephesus and came to Ephesus and participated in the cultic religion of Ephesus by worshiping at this temple of Artemis. And so you'll remember that the silversmith decides he's had enough of these gospel preachers. and So he begins to round people up and a riot begins in the street. They're going to stop the Apostle Paul from preaching and stop these conversions. And you may remember that when they try and quiet the crowds, that this riot erupts and these people start chanting over and over, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And so Paul says here, Great indeed we, what we confess. Great indeed is what we confess. Here's the center of our truth, what we are to defend and declare. Paul calls it, quote, the mystery of godliness. This mystery of godliness. What is it? It is Jesus Christ. And he gives us this wonderful early creed of the church. He's saying, we confess this. I remember the first months that Leah and I ever went to a Presbyterian church. And I hated a lot of things about Presbyterian worship. A lot of things. The one that though bothered me the most about what these crazy Presbyterians do in their worship, is that they would have, like this Presbyterian church did this morning, a confession of faith. I really detested that. And I refused to say it. Because no one was going to tell me in worship what I was to believe and what I was going to say. The very individualistic Understanding of the Christian faith, it was all about me and God. But the apostolic church was a creedal church. They confessed together what they believed together. 
This is a creed in our text this morning. The poetry and the structure are very clear in the Greek that this is a creed that the early church knew, that it no doubt utilized in worship. Each line has two clauses, and a verb begins each, and then there is an ending to each of these verbs that is identical, and each verb is followed by a prepositional phrase. It's poetic. And it's a creed that is all about Christ. It is good and right for you and I to unite our voices together as we've been united together by the same Spirit and the same household of God receiving the same salvation that we would unite our voices together with all of the saints that have come before us and voice together that this is what we believe. We, not me, not you, we are the household of God together. We, Not me. Not you are the church of the living God. We together. We together are the pillar and the buttress of truth. We, and so we confess together. One of the greatest ways to maintain the church as a pillar and buttress of truth is to maintain its corporate confession of what we actually believe together. It would be worth your time to memorize the Apostles' Creed we confessed together this morning. It would be worth your, worth your time to study the Westminster Confession of Faith, to memorize the Westminster Shorter Catechism. My favorite stories from church history is Sadaletto was a, a famous Roman Catholic uh, cardinal during the counter-reformation that was combating Protestant Christianity. And he made a comment at one point, he said that if those Protestants hadn't catechized their children, we would have taken over all of Europe. The benefit to knowing what we believe creedally There are six lines to this creed about Christ. The first line focuses on His birth. He was manifested in the flesh. That is, the Son of God became man. The Son of God descended from heaven. He came into this world. He was born of the Virgin Mary as you confessed this morning. That He was truly and is truly flesh. I was uh, with our college students uh, on Friday night and was doing a pastor Q&A with them where they were asking me all kinds of different questions and uh, we were talking about this. I said, every year at this time of year, almost I can guarantee it, there will at least be one magazine, if not multiple magazines, when you walk through that checkout line at the grocery store getting ready for Easter that will have a lead story that says something about some lost gospel. Or some gospel that's been found. Or something the church hasn't believed and known. There are all kinds of these false gospels that were circulating around the time of the New Testament. And what's fascinating is that so many of them, they deny the humanity of Christ. That was the first heresy the church had to face. Not His divinity. There wasn't doubt about His divinity. There was doubt about His humanity. How could the divine become human? 
So Jesus walks on the beach, and as He walks on the beach, there's no footprints. Because He just appears to be human. No. He's truly flesh. Truly, bodily, He hungered. Bodily, He wept. Bodily, He slept. Bodily, He suffered. Bodily, He was hung upon that tree. Bodily, He died. Bodily, He was resurrected. You do realize that when Jesus, when the Son of God became flesh, that it wasn't just a decision for 33 years. He made that decision for you and I took on flesh and now is flesh forever. Forever. In the flesh. Second, He was vindicated by the Spirit which speaks of Christ's resurrection. His humiliation, becoming flesh, is followed by His exaltation. The Spirit verified and proved over and over all the claims of Jesus. You could see this in His teaching. He had teaching and He taught as one who had authority unlike the scribes and Pharisees. He was a man of complete righteousness that fulfilled the whole law of God. He was a man that could work mercy and could work miracles to help people. The Spirit is testifying over and over and over, but the great testimony of the Spirit The great vindication that Jesus is who He said He was is the resurrection. As the Father testified from heaven at His baptism, so the Spirit testifies at His resurrection. This is the Son of God. Vindicated by the Spirit. Third, He was seen by angels. That is Christ upon His resurrection. He ascended into heaven and their angels see Him bodily and they worship Him bodily. Humiliation, exaltation, now glorification. That beautiful scene in Romans 4 and 5, we get a picture of heaven where we have Christ, the Lamb of God who has been slain and then in Revelation 5, where He comes forward with the scroll. John says this, he says, Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing seen by angels. Fourth, proclaimed among the nations. That is, He didn't stop ministering upon His ascension and glorification to the right hand of the Father. 
But He continues to minister in the world. He sends His body, His family, the very household of God out into the world to minister this truth that we know. This truth that He descended. This truth that He was exalted. This truth that He ascended and was glorified. Proclaimed among the nations. Pentecost, there's just the beginning of it. You just get a little appetizer of it. As Luke says there in Acts 2, that there were men from every nation there that heard the truth of Christ proclaimed. And now that continues to go out as the church goes out. It has this perpetual mission to reach the ends of the earth. A fifth line, believed on in the world. That's a response to the proclamation. He continues to bring more and more into the household of God. More and more sons and daughters are added to the number day after day. This has been true since the very first day at Pentecost when the Spirit is poured out and we're told that 3,000 were added to that number that day. And as those 3,000 went out, the faith spread around the Mediterranean world. It spread across North Africa, and it spread into the plains of Europe, and then eventually spread over the English Channel to what we call Scotland and Ireland and England and Wales today, and then across the Atlantic to the Americas. It went into the deep heart of Africa. It spread across all of the South Pacific and across the islands and Australia and New Zealand. It has truly reached to the ends of the earth. It has been believed on in the world, as the Creed says. In the world. There is no single teaching in the history of humanity that has been so widely received among so diverse a people as this truth. And there's a reason for it. It's because it is truth. And it's for the world. The world. On that last day, It will be those gathered from every tongue, tribe, and nation before His throne. Everyone. And finally, taken up in glory. I take this phrase as continuing the chronological feel of this text. There's a little bit of debate about this. But the chronological flow of this creed, I think it's just as Jesus ascended into glory, so shall He descend in glory when He returns. Why is it in the past tense then, Jason? Paul will often do this with language when something is so sure that he can speak of it as if it's already happened. This is so surely going to happen. That He was taken up in glory. He will return in glory. 
Christ told us that when He returns in the second coming, He will return upon the clouds with the angels and the archangels. He will shine like the sun. There will be no secret rapture. There will be no secret coming. Every single eye shall see Him. Every single knee shall bow before Him. Every single tongue will confess Him to be Lord. There will be no mistaking it. He will be in all His glory. Why does Paul convey the core of the Gospel? I'm talking about ordering the church. It's because the Gospel, Christ's humiliation, His exaltation, His glorification, His return, is not just something you are simply to believe. It is something that is to shape all that you are. You can't just believe the Gospel. You also are required to live in light of the Gospel. That's what he says. He calls it the mystery of godliness. Godliness is to shape our living as individuals. And it's to shape our living together. We're to be marked by love. Love for one another. An uncommon love. To those that are not part of the household of God. We are to be marked by holiness. Because we are always living in the presence of deity. And we are to be marked by truth. We are to defend it. And we are to declare it. It's to influence all of our relationships, all that we are. It's to shape what you and I get excited about. Final four games, the next vacation, for Christ. It's to shape what we're actually passionate about. What do people know that I'm passionate about? My concern over politics is a Christ. To pervade our relationships, our dreams, our hopes, our prayers. It's not enough just to believe, it's to order the household of God. household of God, the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Let's pray. Our Father, oh, we are so thankful that we are able to call you Father. Oh, we would be marked by 
the love that we have been shown. It will pervade us as the household of faith. Forgive us where that is not true and enliven us where there is need. We thank you that you have made us your very temples. And oh, we desire to be more holy. Help us to mortify the deeds of the flesh, not to give in to temptation, live as those who are always before your face, to be people of holiness. Help us as the temple to be a buttress and pillar of truth. Help us to be a people that are committed to truth. We have Christ upon our lips because he is on our hearts. People that teach and preach and share the truth. We're not lukewarm about it. We're passionate for it. Ah, we would be sons and daughters who glorify you well on earth. Help us to do so, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.